welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaurna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 1st of August, 2023. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So, let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Uh, very well, thanks, Ian, and I'm really looking forward to this. Can you tell us, mate, what's up in the sky for the month of August? Lots of things, Brendan, lots of things. For an overview, we've got a really interesting month that is uh, topped and tailed by a perigee moon, also known as a supermoon. And, of course, we're having two full moons in, in one month. This is called a blue moon, even though the moon it never goes blue. Yeah. And we've also got the opposition of Saturn. We lose Venus from the evening sky, and Mercury is at its best. So before I go into the details, I'm going to, again, run through the moon phases. So August the 2nd is the full moon, and again, this is a perigee full moon. August the 8th is the last quarter moon. This would be ideal for looking at faint fuzzies in the sky in the early evening. August the 16th is the new moon, which is also ideal for stargazing. August the 24th is first quarter moon. And August the 31st is another full moon, a blue full moon. This is also a perigee full moon, and it's the best perigee full moon of this year. Cool. So obviously the moon's at perigee on the 2nd and the 31st, and the moon's at apogee when it's first, furthest from the Earth on August the 16th. Yep. Uh, let's have a look at each one in detail. So Mercury, you may have been watching in the evenings recently and seeing that it's been getting easier and easier to see, going past Venus and bright star regulars. It's going to climb even higher in the evening sky, and the first half of the month is the best time to see Mercury because it'll be visible when the sky is truly dark until around about the 15th. So on the 11th, Mercury is at its highest above the horizon. On the 16th, Mercury is in the EMRs. It's about one hand span or five degrees away. 
And on the 18th, Mercury and the Thin Crescent Moon form a triangle. Then on the following night, Mercury, Mars and the Thin Crescent Moon form a line. So it'll be a very nice thing to see. Venus, which has been our companion in the evening sky for so many months, will leave us after the first week. It's already plummeting rapidly towards the horizon. And I don't know if anyone's going to be uh, being, uh, watching it through a telescope, but it's a really, really, truly thin at the moment. It will appear in the morning twilight at the end of the month. Now, Mars is well past opposition. It's still visible as it passes through Leo de Virgo, but now it's no longer a bright red signpost, but a dim a red spark. On the 16th, Mercury is near Mars, so they're both in a handspan, I said before. And once again, on the 18th, we have that triangle from Mars, Mercury, and the crescent moon. And again, on the 19th, you've got Mars, Mercury, and the crescent moon forming this nice line in the sky with Mars fairly close to the crescent moon. Of course, Saturn is at opposition this month when its biggest and brightest is seen from Earth. So on the 27th is when it's at opposition. But prior to this and after this, it'll be excellent viewing for some time. Now, it's above the north, uh, eastern, northern sky uh, in the evening. And it's relatively bright, but it's the brightest object in its area. And it's wedged between two brightish stars. So if you look off to your west, you'll see the bright Altair in between two dimmer stars. If you look off to the south, you'll see Pommelout. And the object between Altair and Pommelout is Saturn. If you're in any doubt about which one is Saturn, then again on the third, the moon will be uh, quite close to Saturn. And then on the 30th again, the moon will be close to Saturn, so you'll be able to say which of those bright objects is Saturn fairly easily. Cool. So, by itself, Saturn doesn't look very exciting. Uh, it's a beautiful golden color and one of the brightest objects around the northeastern horizon. But through a, even a small telescope, the view of Saturn's rings is fantastic. Oh, yes. Even little apartment store telescopes can let you to see the rings of Saturn. And in a decent telescope, the rings of Saturn are truly amazing. So if you don't have a telescope, see if you can find a friend with a telescope or find out when your local astronomical society has an open day and have a look at Saturn through a, through a decent telescope and you'll be amazed. I mean, it, I don't know how many times I've looked at Saturn, but it still is an absolutely amazing sight. And that's the standout planet for this month. What about the morning skies, Ian? In the morning sky, Jupiter's climbing higher and higher. It's now visible in the quite early morning. And again, it's a very good target for a telescope. And you'll be able to see the moon's shuttling around quite nicely in either a telescope or a pair of binoculars. It's easily visible as the bright golden yellow object uh, now above the northern horizon in the morning. Yep. And on the 8th to the 9th, the waning moon will be near Jupiter. Not very close, but you'll be able to see the moon bracketing 
duped on those two successive mornings. Very good. Now, as I said, we've got two perigee moons. So the full moon of August the 2nd is a perigee syzygy moon. That's when the moon is at its closest to Earth. And from our point of view, it's at its biggest to brightest. But it's only about 30% bigger from the average moon, which is around about the diameter of a human hair. Some people will be able to see this difference. People like me won't be able to. But if you remember the apogee moon back in February, you'll be able to see there's a significant difference between the perigee moon and this moon. While it's not very obvious to the unaided eye, it's very obvious in imagery. So if you've taken a photograph of a perigee moon and then take a photograph using the same zoom factor, obviously, of this perigee moon, and compare them, you'll see that the perigee moon is obviously bigger than the apogee moon. I make a cottage industry of taking photographs of perigee and apogee moons. Now, if you compare the moon of the 2nd of August with the moon of 31st of August, you won't see too much difference because they're both perigee moons. The second perigee moon is actually better than the first perigee moon in terms of overall size. But again, to really see this, you'd have to compare it with uh, apogee moon to really see the size difference. Yep. As, as I said, this is a blue perigee moon, as it's the second full moon in the month. Now, if you have a full moon that's uh, at the beginning of a, a month, which has 30 or more days in it, then the second one is likely to, the second full moon is likely to fall within the same month. But this tends to only occur about once every 2.5 years. So while once in a blue moon is not common, it's also not super rare. Yep. And of course, when the moons are out of the way in between our perigee moons, and we have dark skies, you'll notice that Scorpio is beginning to sink towards the western horizon and Sagittarius, the archer, is dominating the zenith at the moment. And with that, the centre of the galaxy and a wealth of objects to look at in binoculars. If you look at the zenith, you'll probably see the teapot of Sagittarius, a fairly obvious asterism, where the centre of the constellation looks like a teapot. From our vantage point in Australia, it looks like an upside-down teapot. If you look carefully at the lid, you'll notice a fuzzy star off to one side, and through binoculars, that fuzzy star resolves into a tangled ball of cotton wool. And through telescopes, you can see thousands and thousands of stars, because that's one of the most impressive globular clusters outside of 472 Cano M22. Also, if you wave your binoculars around, there's some very obvious things to see, such as the Trippid Nebula and the Lagoon Nebula and great spattering of star clusters with a clear sky, a pair of binoculars and a comfy chair who can explore this area for, for quite some time. And even with the unaided eye, it just looks beautiful. And if you're in a dark sky site, you can see the great rifts of dust going through the galactic centre, um, uh, making, uh, making the Milky Way look absolutely stunning. Yes. 
Now, if you turn to the southern sky, the Southern Cross has been quite prominent. But if you're looking around about 10 o'clock, the Southern Cross is now about at the four o'clock position, if you can imagine the southern sky as a clock face. So the southern cross hand is now at the four o'clock position. This means a lot of the really exciting things are now below the horizon or too close to the horizon to see. Our magnificent globular cluster, Argus and Tauri, is still readily visible, forming uh, the apex of a triangle between the pointers and the southern cross itself. So if you use the pointers and the Southern Cross as the baseline and move about two to three Southern Cross distances out, you should be able to pick up the fuzzy ball of uh, Obix and Tauri relatively easy. Of course, though, the darker your skies, the better. Nice. It is nice indeed. And uh, that's August, which should keep us busy for quite some time. Okay. Ian, do you have a tangent for us for August? I do indeed have a tangent for us for August. And it revolves around Mercury. And it's Mercury, as I said, is very obvious now. Brighter than Regulus, heading towards the dimming ember that is Mars. And, of course, it's now the brightest object above the western horizon once Venus has set. And even though you can see Mercury quite well, one thing you won't see is Mercury's tail. Whoa. Yes, Mercury does have a tail, and I've talked about this before, especially as I was able to pick up in, uh, images from the stereo satellite, and it was the source of my only published paper in the astronomical field. Of course, I was a very, very junior co-author on that paper. Now, the intense heat of the sun vaporises elements in Mercury's surface and drives the atoms out in the tail. Of course, sodium isn't the only element coming out. There's also potassium and other things. But it is the one that fluoresces the brightest. Now, despite this, the only way you can see Mercury's tail is if you use special filters that let sodium uh, light through. For example, a 58 nanometer filter. These can be obtained, but they're not exactly the thing you'll have on your local astronomical store's shelf. Unfortunately, for reasons having to do with the Doppler shift of sodium absorption, lines in the solar spectrum, Mercury's tail is most luminous when the planet is plus or minus 16 days for, from perihelion. That is the closest approach to the sun. And for this, this was back on the July the 13th or so. You can still pick it up, but it's going to be much dimmer and a much bigger ask for amateur instruments. Now, having said this, amateurs have produced some fabulous images using modest camera setups stacking multiple CCD images, and of course, with these really uh, narrow astronomical filters. If you want to have a go, the next perihelion is on the 21st of December, and so you'd probably be looking around about sometime early January. Unfortunately, plus or minus 16 days from perihelion means uh, Mercury is quite low to the rise in, in twilight, and uh, picking it up may be difficult requires a degree of planning. Now, Mercury isn't the only solar system object that has a sodium tail. The Moon does so too, and for much the same reason, but of course weaker. And in this case, you really need uh, special instruments. The Moon's sodium tail streams out into the darkness, but because the Moon orbits the Earth occasionally, this sodium tail wraps around us. Cool. But the really big surprise is that the asteroid Phaeton has a sodium tail as well. 
Now, Python is the source of the Gemini Meteors and the so-called Rock Comet. Now, Python dives into a perihelion of less than half that from Mercury, so it gets much closer to the sun. And the intense heat was thought to blast small particles of rock off it, so forming the dust tail that gives rise to the Geminids. And indeed, uh, the solar observation satellites SOHO and STEREO all picked up a stubby tail uh, when they looked for it. However, it wasn't until the Parker Solar Probe took a very close look at it that the, they found that the tail couldn't be made of rock dust. So I went back uh, to the SOHO instrument and using several different filters, uh, different wavelengths, they found that the uh, tail of Python is mostly sodium atoms, like that of Mercury and the Moon. So Python has a sodium tail. So the mystery of the tail is solved, but it's generated a new mystery. If Python doesn't shed much dust, how does the asteroid supply the material for the generated meteor showers we see each December? Is it uh, left over from a uh, more catastrophic event uh, earlier in its history? Or does every so often the sodium venting from the surface kick off a bit of dust? These are all questions for the future. But it also gives rise to another question. How many sunraiser comets found in Soho and stereo images are actually rocks with sodium tails? So we, we see a lot of uh, objects that come really close to the sun and develop small tails when they're close to the sun. Are these the broken up remnants of comets or are they indeed close passing asteroids? I suppose one way to solve this is if, it, if the object gets close to the sun and comes back out again, it's probably a rock. And if the object gets close to the sun and doesn't come out again, it's probably a comet. Yep. Nonetheless, this is a, a worthy mystery for us amateurs to try and solve. And I'm sure there are numbers of uh, people right now pouring over stereo and Soho images trying to puzzle out which is which. So more research, Ian. Definitely more research and more exciting things for us amateurs to have a look at. Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. We'll see you next month. No worries, mate. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to show people this today. And I look forward to talking next month. Good night, mate. Good night. See you later. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free, and unsponsored. And in two weeks' time, we're really pleased to bring you an in-depth interview with Professor Michelle Kluver, who is an Associate Professor at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. Her research is focused on the largest structures in our universe, the physics and chemistry of galaxies, supermassive galaxies and clusters of galaxies, and she uses mid-infrared data to see what's happening behind and inside immense dust clouds that normally obscure our view of these distant galaxies. Tune in. Till then, keep looking up. See you then. Radio Wave.